and welcome back to AA Opera Podcast Season 3! Yay! I mean, we were counting every episode, weren't we now? But I I feel quite proud that we've got three seasons of this. We are on episode 33. I mean, actually, actually, we're 3333. I'm sure there's some significance in that, some underlying meaning. (laughs) Season 3. Episode 33, week 33 of the year. Actually, I don't know. Is that true? What week are we on? That is spooky if we are on week 33 of the year. Oh. What? No. Close. Close. So close. Oh, that is close. It's close. I'm actually quite glad it wasn't week 33 because I think something weird was going on. (laughs) Anyway, Avi, what have you been up to? I've been practicing my recital. I've been back at the Royal Academy of Music in the whole um, COVID situation. So I've been finally able to sing again, which has been amazing and very refreshing to be able to like open my vocal cords and do things. And yeah, just doing some behind the scenes things for my final recital. And did I mention this, but I got the visa that I applied for. Yay, yeah, well, obviously I know that, but. I think our listeners do not know that. So, yes, that is the good yeah. news. AA Opera will continue stronger than ever. <laughs> what, what? And, uh, yeah, it's just been been exciting. What about you? Uh, similar stuff, uh, preparing for the recital. Um, but I have just been singing more in my flat. And uh, I'm actually going home uh, next week uh, back to Newcastle to, to do the recording for that. Um, but I also started... But I also started a YouTube channel, which was very exciting. Um, yeah, so there's... <laughs> and now we are both YouTubers and podcasters. There's a good little triangle going on now. We've got A Opera in the middle, and then you've got Abby's YouTube channel and my YouTube channel. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, go subscribe. <laughs> I'll link my channel. <laughs> yeah, subscribe um, to both of us so that you don't miss a thing that we do. Um, so yeah, I've just been very busy with that. It's uh, it's very time consuming, but I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, it's one of those things that um, no one really understands how much work goes into YouTube. It's not like just sit down and do it. Like oh, you've got it's... especially being a newbie to it as well. Like I mean, you were great at giving me you know some good advice and and I felt ready. I, f- I felt really ready, but the amount of technical hurdles that I had to come over like the camera overheating like the SD card being full like the microphone not being in sync with the video the whole time yeah it was uh hard and then you also have like things for instance I the first year that I was on YouTube I think I was at the Apple store my computer just didn't really like me editing videos and I was at the Apple store I think once once a week trying to upload videos because there was some kind of bug that it decided to do. It was awful, but <laughs> you'll get over it. You'll be fine. You'll be cruising soon. <laughs> Thanks for the support. <laughs> You're welcome. To kick off season three, we have mezzo contralto Jennifer Johnston, a world-renowned singer with an incredible talent, not only for singing, but also sharing love of food. Yes, it was an absolutely great chat with Jennifer and what a way to kick off season three. So we hope you guys enjoy. Well, Jennifer, welcome to AA Opera. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, It's great to meet you virtually. Uh, Would you like to start off with just introducing yourself to our listeners? Hi everyone, I'm Jennifer Johnston. I'm a British mezzo-soprano, or mezzo-contralto really, Um, and I am currently at home, (laughs) not working in Liverpool. Oh, Liverpool, very nice. So you went, you studied at Cambridge, your undergrad, but then you did your postgrad actually at the Royal College of Music. I think you're the first person on here we have from the Royal College. (gasps) Justin, Justin. Sorry, how long were you there for? How long? Three years. Yeah. So I, I... Bed my soul in the Britain Theatre um, regularly. <laughs> it's quite funny because um, you, you find that as time's gone on, I've carried on being friends with my friends from that period, and we all talk very fondly of it, but we all hate it when we're there all the time. <laughs> you know, it's all it's all looked through rose-tinted spectacles now. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, I think with everything, we're looking through rose tinted spectacles at this point. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> but can you tell us exactly, can you tell us what the transition was like from graduation and then until you became a BBC Next Generation artist? Did it happen right away or was it not that straightforward? My, my path has been very different from almost everybody I've ever met because I was a barrister in London in Chambers and um, I sang at a friend's wedding, um, Henry's barrister and Ruth's a solicitor. So it was a big legal wedding and um, it was hilarious in itself. And I've told this story a few times recently and um, been met with shock. I'm about to see register on your faces. Um, in that wedding was a choir and it was in Suffolk. And in the choir was a little choir boy, I think he was about seven, with ginger hair who grew up to be Ed Sheeran. So they had at their wedding, both me and Ed Sheeran sing, which has been a source of much amusement in all the years since. Um, at that wedding were the Clearbury's. So Sir Stephen Clearbury had known me as a student at Cambridge and Emma, his wife, and I still know Emma very well. And, and um, they said to me, why aren't you singing? And Stephen said, I'm going to coach you and you're going to apply for the conservatoires and you know, we'll see how you go. So I was like, okay. And I told my teacher, Lillian Watson, who you guys will know. Um, I was her first ever pupil. And uh, I came to her with all sorts of vocal problems caused by being in a choir in Cambridge and not looking after my voice. And she said, what the hell? You're not ready. But I said, well, I'm going to go for it anyway. And she sort of nodded and said, okay, whatever. Um, she was supportive, really, but she was just sort of getting me prepared for what was ahead. Mm. And um, I auditioned for the Royal College and was given a scholarship. So I said, okay, I'll go for a year. So I told my chambers I'm leaving for a bit. And then um, they said, that's fine. You can always come back. Um, and then I arrived at the Royal College. Lillian was off singing in Santa Fe in New Mexico. So she was so far away that I didn't think to ask her whether it was okay to, as a postgrad to audition for the college opera. Um, and so I just got on with it. And it was uh, Albert Herring and it was going to be Sir Thomas Allen's directorial debut. And so the world and their dog was watching. Wow. So I thought, oh, well, I'll audition and it's fine. And, and you know, I won't get anywhere. And um, they cast me over all the people in the opera school as Mrs. Herring. <laughs> so um, Good for you, good for within, you. Within a few days of opening night, I was signed by Askin Holt, who are my agents now. So still, so my, my path has been really different to other people's, to be honest. Wow, so wow. I'm sort of almost embarrassed to talk about it. But no, it's, don't be. It's, it's just, I don't know if this shit would happen now because the world has changed a lot in the, the long time since it was since it happened then. Um, agents don't sign young singers so often anymore, um, mm. in particular. And I, I think everybody has their own individual paths. There's no comparator. You can't, you can't put yourself in someone else's shoes, but um, I know how lucky I was. And I've remained lucky because my agents are amazing and I love them dearly and, and they, they've supported me through a fairly unconventional career as well to be fair so yeah, yeah. that's incredible well, yeah I mean amazing amazing story um <laughs> it's just it's incredible and you know you shouldn't be embarrassed about it at all um, no, I don't mean embarrassed really but it's that sort of slightly sheepish really um yeah, the thing yeah. so in recent times I've been asked about it more I think now um it is once you add Ed Sheeran into the mix, it, it's of interest to other people. <laughs> definitely, definitely. I think it's just one of those things where it's like you never know where you're going to be or where you're going to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, following on from that, um, looking at your portfolio of a career, you know, you've done a lot of operas, you've done a lot of concerts, and you've done a, a lot of recordings, uh, which is amazing. But I'm interested to know... Um, a little bit about the differences between those opportunities that you've had. Oh, it's vast. Um, uh, Avi asked about the BBC New Generation Artist Programme as well. And that even that's changed since I was given a place on it because I was given a place on it. I didn't I didn't apply for it. You couldn't. You were selected. Um, it, it completely well, felt like at random. Of course, it wasn't. It's just um, I had a phone call out of the blue from from them to ask if I could come to the Wigmore Hall to sing for 
Adam Gatehouse, who's now in charge of the Leeds Piano Competition, um, at that point was in charge of the scheme for the BBC. And um, I thought that I was singing for him a, a piece, uh, for a piece that a friend of mine, Charles Francis Hope, the composer had written. Um, she'd written it for somebody else and they'd looked at it and gone, I can't sing that. That's meant for somebody like Jen's voice. You know, this is, that it just, it won't work. So I, I and my agent had both presumed that's why I was going. So um, it, it came as a real shock then when I was told that I had a place on the scheme because it's such a prized thing. It's such an amazing opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something that not everybody suits it because it's very, very hard work. And a few people I've known over the years who've been on the scheme haven't found it all that easy or felt that they've benefited to the max because they've just been frankly too stressed to do it. I mean, you, you, you don't get to edit anything yourself. It's all done by the producers. You don't really hear anything. So you have to treat every recording you make as a live performance. And mm -hmm. if you're not used to working with orchestras and things like that, that it can be very hard. Um, it sounds I also do, very tiring at the same time, like if you have to do Yeah, it, it, but, I mean, quite amazing. I mean, I completely loved the fact that, that I gave them a repertoire list and, and they'd send that off to the orchestras um, and they'd just tell me what pieces I was going to record. And I mean, they were all the great works and things that most people would kill to sing in my yeah. voice. Um, and then you also do studio sessions with a pianist. And I have two accompanists, Alistair Hogarth and Joseph Middleton, who I love both of them very much. And, and so um, in over the two year period, we did loads of studio stuff as well. And I made my Wigmore debut live on Radio 3 with Joe um, and things, wow. like, things like that. that it, it gives you a massive boost, but also teaches you a huge amount about not just being professional and turning up and knowing your stuff and knowing your work and making sure that what you're producing is good enough to be heard by Radio 3 listeners. Um, also appreciating that um, work, working, being able to work at a high rate of turnover is, is actually a very useful skill, not just to sit in your own thoughts too much and, and to get on with it really. So it was a, it was a great experience. Yeah, so really it, it was that experience that set you up for for the career that you have now, which oh, is so versatile. Hugely, and I think it opened my eyes to a lot of things that perhaps I wouldn't have thought about before. I mean, I do quite a bit of contemporary music, and I think some of that is because I'm not scared of it, because I've been through this process of, they, it basically makes you not scared of anything, because if you can get through that, frankly, you can get through anything, really, in the end. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and you come out of the other side and you also have this extraordinary body of work which the BBC have in their archives and it gets rolled out all the time so I mean it's hilarious I, I very often I'll, I've turned the radio on to hear myself singing and I've not known why or what I had to listen a while to figure out what it is that I'm listening to because I've, re I've recorded over I think at the last count 300 pieces for the BBC that's mm. like people so, barely get mm. one thing out these days to be able to say like yeah. I've recorded over like that's an well, incredible I mean, some, of that, some of that are individual leads and you know so it's not it's not 300 song cycles or anything like that <laughs> but it's um it's it's included all sorts I mean included operas it's included yeah all sorts of things and of course I still work for the BBC um and uh last year I was, did the first night of the proms so it feels like the odd at the moment to have this crazy period of being at home when I look a year ago how it was and how excited everybody was about the fact that I was going to be singing at first night and all that it's just like a different world it's it it existed you know in a parallel universe it's, it's very strange so when you work on different pieces uh, on different types of repertoire is there a different process in preparing with the orchestra and the conductor and obviously when working on operas, you have more rehearsals, but how does that affect you as the performer? There's such a vast difference between all three disciplines that um, the only thing I feel is that a bit like across all areas of my professional life, the one thing that counts is preparation. And the preparation that you do for each individual thing is different. So when I get an opera score, if I'm learning something from new, from scratch, if I've not done it before, 
Um, there are certain decisions you can't make for yourself because that's for the directors to do. Um, so I will take an, a fresh score, open it, I'll highlight my lines visually, which helps because it sets out then in terms of the layout of the opera where my character's going to be and who with. I then write out the libretto from the perspective of my character. So I take what is said to my character, what I say and what others say about my character and put it all in a notebook so that I have a very clear idea of who she, mainly she, I don't play boys really, um, it, but ma mainly, you know, looking at motivations, looking at background and, and then you start to see gaps. So you'll start to see things that you can add I mean, no director will be able to fill in a backstory for you unless it's a particular, a particular production. Um, for the most part, you have to do that yourself. You have to decide who they are as people, whether you um, want them to be as, well, in some cases, as evil as they appear. And you have to find the nuances, essentially. So um, that process is quite important. And then you, you then start learning the music. And I think it's really important then that you have a clear idea of what you think this person is about so that it, it then affects what colours that you deploy in a, any given phrase. It allows flexibility in terms of um, real sort of decision making, but you still have to do, you to have, this process has to be gone through before the first day of rehearsals because it has to also be ingrained in you because once you get into a major opera house, even in a new production where there's six weeks of rehearsals, perhaps, that's not as much time as you think. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy to think, oh, I've got loads of time. And actually that's not true at all. Um, so I tend, if I can, to start looking at an opera any time up to a year before it, because it, there's so much else going on. I mean, I, in any given season, apart from this one, <laughs> um, I'll have, I'll have anywhere up to 60 performances all told, whether it's across concerts, recitals or opera. And that's a lot of music. So there's, mm. there's a need to be disciplined in terms of planning what you're doing. And opera takes them in some ways the most learning because of the other background work that you have to do. When it comes to looking at, um, let's say, a big song cycle with orchestra, yeah, there's a lot of pressure there because if you're the only soloist, which I often am because of my voice type, you know, if I'm singing, well, I, I sing Mahler endlessly. So um, anything by him apart from the symphonies um, or, you know, if I'm doing an oratorio like Gerontius, which is the angel sings a lot. So, I mean, there's all sorts of permutations in concert. Most of the time you can use a score, um, but you still have to know it well enough to be able to lift your eyes from the score. Yeah. Um, I also don't particularly enjoy having a score some of the time, so it makes my back ache. So um, if I'm not allowed to use a stand, I get resentful and then I get cross. Um, so I've, I've made up my policy now to ask for a stand regardless of what my colleagues are doing. Um, because I just, why shouldn't I be comfortable in, in you have how to I'm be in your body, yeah. And I don't enjoy holding a score in any, for any length of time. And I just feel it's a barrier. Whereas if I have a stand there, I can step away from it. So it's, it makes life a bit easier. But um, concert work is in some ways very different, clearly, because you don't have a costume, you don't have sets, you don't mm. have very often you don't have a lot of time with the conductor even. So yeah. the decisions you make on the music in that sense are much bigger and more profound because you make the decisions a lot of the time. You still do have to adapt to conductors though. I mean, I've sung Messiah for instance over a hundred times and, and I can't sing it consistently because every time it's different, speed's different, the way mm -hmm. somebody conducts is different from the previous conductor, you know. So you do have to retain flexibility. Um, it's only when you get to recitals that you're fully in control. But I like mm. it least. <laughs> don't like having to be standing naked, essentially, with just me and a piano. So um, I don't do very many. I do them when I really want to, but I don't. I don't ever have an appetite for having a 
massive recital career because it's unbelievably hard work and not as well paid as doing concerts and opera and mm. you really have to love it I think to, to want to fill your year with it. That's interesting I would have thought yeah. that like because you're the soloist people want to come see you and then there's less people less money going around anyway since it's you and the pianist. That's interesting I didn't know that that was not as well paying as a concert. Oh no you ask anybody in the industry and for those of us who do do recitals at all because some people choose not to do them at all um we all do them as i say because we want to rather than worrying about how much money we're going to earn from them or you know yeah. how much work it takes to put them together um i i've i've also i get some enjoyment from programming so if i'm allowed to program i'm much happier than if i'm given a program by somebody mm -hmm. um, so in recent times i mainly i it's stuff that I've sort of come up with myself that, that I'm much more com competent at and confident with because I've thought through all sorts of things when planning a programme. So, I mean, everybody's different. I would, I would say to anyone, just do what, do what makes you happy in the end. Yeah, that's, that's the best advice. <laughs> um, so with all of the, the performances, as you said, you know, you can be scheduled in for 60 performances and have a lot of music to learn. Could I just ask you a bit about sort of like how you, how you deal with that and sort of your, any pre-show advice for dealing with like the performance itself? As I said, preparation is literally everything. So you're it less was, nervous if you're yeah, it fully prepared. Too. It's not just as a singer. It mm -hmm. is everything. It mm -hmm. is knowing that you are fully in control because things will go wrong. And so if you're very well prepared, you, your brain has the space to cope with stuff going wrong then. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're not fully prepared, so if you don't know it well enough or whatever, you, it's very hard to cope then. I mean, one example, which is quite funny, um, I was on stage in Das Rheingold Wagner in Munich, the Bayerische Staatsoper. Oh. And at that point I was singing Balgunda. I've moved, I've, I've been downgraded to uh, Los Hilda in that production now because I was too loud as Balgunda. <laughs> um, and uh, the costumes, are, you look a bit like Elsa from Frozen. So you have this long blue, blonde wigs and they're, they're like strapless pale blue dresses with these sort of circular skirts and bare, you're barefooted and whatever. And as Belgunder, Albrecht has to get under your skirt for a bit of the scene. Mm -hmm. And I'm singing away and I realised Tomasz Konichny, who's thankfully a friend, um, was under my skirt and his wig had got caught in my corset. So I, in front of an audience of a lot of thousands of people, had to extricate him and then completely lost where I was. Um, so made up a load of German and it sort of, I, fi I finished where I was supposed to, but it didn't make any sense, I don't think. And the conductor, Kirill Petrenko, who's just become the Berlin Phil's conductor, was utterly helpless laughing, watching all of this unfold. Um, and that's the point is that you, you have to cope somehow. We all have moments. I mean, you ask anybody uh, uh, who's had enough experience of live theatre that this, the potential stuff going wrong is endless. So mm -hmm. preparation means that if you're completely competent at what you've been given to do, if, it, if it's completely within your physical system and muscle memory, and you can sing it without thought, which, um, which sounds a strange thing to say, but it's true, you should be able to be in the opera without thinking too hard about what's coming next or whatever, you know it that well then it takes the pressure off and it also cope, it means the nerves wise, mm -hmm. you can cope. I mean, you know, the opening night of a premiere, as in like of a new production, where the world and their dog are watching, every critic on the planet is there. Like I had recently with Die Torte Stadt because I was doing it with Jonas Kaufmann. So everyone was like, okay, we're coming. And we were making a DVD and all that. And um, the pressure is enormous. And so, you have to find a way of blocking that out somehow. And just, it's just another day. Of course it's not, because you know, you arrive in the dressing room and the table's full of flowers and presents from other people and bottles of champagne and all that, which is really lovely, but it adds to the stress. 
because yeah. then you're like oh god um, <laughs> and then you're like then you're like well I hope they like it but you have to at the end of the day the moment you step foot through the stage door the door at the side of the, the wings you have to put all of that to one side and say okay I'm here to do a job my job is is clear I've rehearsed it I just have to get on with it Mm -hmm. that's an, yeah that's an amazing story i just like can only see <laughs> that taking place where you're trying to like pull a man's wig out of you that's amazing. <laughs> yeah it's not it wasn't it wasn't great um he also didn't realize that his wig was stuck he just thought <gasps> i was saying crap i think and i'd forgotten to take him out from under my skirt so while i was rooting around trying to find what was connected he was just like Cut that, please. And he was like, he was like, what on earth is going on? I don't understand. Brilliant. So having all of these wonderful opportunities to perform all over the world, that means a lot of travel, doesn't it? So, can you tell us a bit about what that's like, a touring as a as an opera singer, as a performer? I mean, sometimes it can be great, particularly if you get to go to new places that you've never been before. I mean, before lockdown, I flew to San Sebastian in Spain, the sort of gastronomic capital of the world, and um, to do Das Lied von der Erde with the Euskadi Orchestra, the Basque National Orchestra. And I was there sufficiently long, I think six days to start with before we went on tour, um, to mean that we had a day off and so we we were able to go and eat in a three Michelin starred restaurant for the night which I've never experienced before um, and it, it there are occasions like that where you're like okay I can I can deal with this this is cool yeah, yeah. Um, and Artsak which is the restaurant we went to is very famous because it's a um, it's a female chef she's the world's greatest female chef essentially and so I was like yeah how cool um, in that <laughs> sense too um, but then there are many times where it can be utterly miserable and you're somewhere pretty awful on your own, not knowing a single person. And the weather's terrible, so you can't go outside. And, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I've done concerts in places like Finland where it's been minus 40 outside. So you, you have to just deal with it. Whatever is there, you deal with it. You just, you learn as you get a bit older, sadly. I'm not that young anymore. But, but the reality is that not every day is going to be a good one. It's up to you to make the best of it, whatever it is. That you're there to do a job. It is not just, you know, a, a big jolly. And the realities are that it's a tough existence. Flying all the time is hard work. So... I don't particularly enjoy the long haul bits. I mean, I made a massive mistake a few years ago. I went to Australia to do some concerts, was there for five days, flew home, and a week later went to uh, Kuala Lumpur to do some concerts. And I nearly died from jet lag. I just didn't wow. even know where I was. I woke up <laughs> some mornings and I didn't know what continent I was on. And, and I couldn't have told you, I couldn't even told you what country I was in. I mean, I just had no idea. I was just in my own little bubble, it was horrific. So I learned my lesson and I'm never doing that again. You learn as you get older that you do have choices and sometimes you have to say no to things for a number of reasons. And it's not just about the glamour that you perceive that you're going to get when you're doing a particular job. It has to be a, a, a look at your diary as a whole. You have to make careful choices about what repertoire follows what. It's, it's daft to think that you can sing at a very high level and one minute sing very high repertoire and the next minute go down into boots. And as particularly for me, it just doesn't work. So I've had to be careful about that. But also I've got a 12 year old daughter and mm -hmm. I'm a single parent. So I really need to not be away all the time. Mm -hmm. So there's an awful lot of planning that goes into my year apart from now <laughs> yeah <laughs> when now is who knows but but it's it's i think there's a lot more that goes into an opera career or a career certainly like mine which has a lot of concerts in it than people appreciate um mm. so it, it isn't as easy as it might appear from the outside that's really interesting yeah. does did ever do you ever make decisions of taking like a time 
to stay at home to learn repertoire or are you always learning repertoire as you go? I never ever take time. <laughs> My agents get really cross. They're like, you need to have some time off. We'd actually planned that I was having September off this year. Only I'm now home for the entire year, it feels like. Mm. Um, but the first holiday I actually had, I mean proper holiday, where I actually went away. I went to Florida to Disney World. Yeah. for two weeks with my daughter um, was was three years ago so. wow <laughs> yeah you need a holiday yeah. <laughs> covid doesn't count as a holiday <laughs> well, I was, well i've got i i mean i we walked something crazy like up to forty thousand steps a day for those two weeks so i came back very fit um yeah but um i've learned that there are also times where I've now added onto trips a holiday. So this time, two years ago, I think it was, um, we were in Japan because I sang with the Cleveland Orchestra in Tokyo and I had to go for one rehearsal, one concert. So I did a half an hour rehearsal and then a concert of Beethoven 9, which I sing about 14 notes in. So um, they flew me out all that way. And so I thought I'd take my daughter and we then spent two weeks in Japan traveling around. It was amazing. That's, so my, we, that's my dream is to get a job in Japan and to use that as an excuse to travel there. <laughs> oh my God, it's just the best thing. And her school, thankfully, were very understanding and let her have two weeks off school, or well, three weeks actually in the end, because I went straight from Rotterdam with the BBC Scottish Symphony, <laughs> all things. Um, and, and so, yes, I think it was three weeks that we were away for. And it was just the best thing. It was, it was incredible. And it was lovely to relax, frankly. It doesn't happen very much. In, in my normal working life, so. Yeah, treat yourself. But you were, were you asking about learning though? I'm always normally yeah. learning all the I was, time. If you ever take time to do like a learning retreat where you stop traveling or do you always learn as you're traveling? A learning retreat would be incredibly luxurious. <laughs> <And> frankly, <laughs> never has happened yet. Mm. Um, I think the thing is though when you get to my age um, I'm 43 I don't mind admitting it either I'm no longer considered a young artist um, I've done a lot of repertoire so for the most part in every season about it can be around 60% isn't new mm. so I'm not then having to reinvent the wheel I don't have to start from scratch apart from there are occasional pieces particularly if it's contemporary repertoire Mm-hmm. Um, which if it's really hard, I don't remember it necessarily as well as I might've liked. Um, but I find, oh, interesting as well with Benjamin Britten's music, even if I sang it 15 years ago, I still remember every word. So it, it's a strange thing. It depends on the composer, I think as well. So in addition to your singing career, which is, as we said, very busy, you also occasionally write for The Guardian. What was that? What is it like to critique your own industry from within it? Because you write about like women's placement in opera. So what is, what is that like? And how did that come about? It came about because Tara Erort sang um, Octavian at Glyndebourne and a group of male critics the morning after the first night wrote reviews that just basically called her fat. And I was in Munich and in the middle of uh, production rehearsals and um, I'd been helping Fiona Maddox research a book. Um, Fiona Maddox is the Observer's classical music critic. Um, I'd been working with Harrison Burt Whistle and so she was writing a book about his existence and she became aware of the fact that I could write well and so this issue came up about Tara and the editor at The Guardian and it was, I think it was not just the classical music editor, it became such a big story that the, the whole world seemed to know about it. Um, the Guardian, they rang me and they said, we need somebody who's within the industry to write about this and we think you're the person. So I sat in Starbucks in Munich next to the Opera House and I wrote it in an hour, the article that appears in The Guardian. And I sent it and went back into rehearsals. I was in rehearsals for three hours without my phone because it depends where you are in the building. Sometimes there's absolutely no signal whatsoever in the opera house. And anyway, I didn't have time. I mean, you know, I was right in the throes of something. And I turned my phone on 
when I got back out, or at least it came to life again. And I had 2,700 notifications on my phone. Oh, Jesus. Because wow. the world had gone mental. And wow. uh, I've written this article quite sort of, you know, casually. Um, I, every, I meant every word and I still stand by every word. And, and um, every news agency in the world wants to interview me. And my poor agent was just sick of the phone ringing. And I said no to all of that because I'd said what I needed to say in the garden itself. And it, it meant that after that, then, of course, then it carried on rolling. I mean, it, it, other publications started to write stuff. And, um, but it, I was quite proud that I was the first. Um, but it showed me that in order to stick your head above the parapet, you have to be on very safe ground under your own feet. And you also have to be very careful um, about not just what you say, but how you say it. And um, I knew that anyway, but it sort of reinforced how I felt about it. Um, and I've done other bits of writing as well. And, and I think you have to take responsibility for what you write. So you have to be able to um, argue for it and know that you, you believe in what you're writing and not just writing because either somebody's told you or you, you're writing what you think people want to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, in relation to the, the article I wrote about the, the sort of perceived cult of the maestro, I, again, it, it, that was very hard because I had information that I couldn't publish, but I still can't, um, relating to certain individuals, um, which will come out at some point, I'm sure some of it has already. Um, and that's also a responsibility because you have people you need to look after as well and that's the problem with modern journalism particularly tabloid journalism is they don't care um but i do care and i don't want ever to have anybody feel that they've been sort of picked on um by anything i've written so um yeah it it just it's sometimes i think that having a voice uh, it's the same with the radio appearances have made on things like Radio 4, that it is really important that our industry is represented by people who are able to stand up for certain things at least, not being discriminated against at work, not being abused at work, Mm. not being abused by critics, you know, they're all things that are important. Yeah, I think people like yourself is is what journalism needs, you know, someone speaking from you know, you, you have experienced this, you are in the industry, um, is really important. It, it's a very unusual industry in that it's quite small. So mm. the reality is there aren't millions of people out there who know how it is to stand in our shoes. And so I think sometimes it's important that we have within our industry people who are willing to speak on behalf of everybody. And that will continue. I think, particularly at the moment, advocacy for our industry, particularly in these desperate times, is going to be very important and I'm very relieved that the conductors have all started to gather speed in terms of speaking out where the government is concerned about keeping orchestras and opera houses going um, despite all this crazy advice about not singing and having musicians four metres apart and all that it's it's well well, it remains to be seen if all of that carries on. Yeah. But we, we don't live in, easy, in an easy era. We didn't anyway, because arts funding, particularly in the UK, was diminishing all the time. So that has a knock-on effect. And it is really coming home to roost now, because arts organisations have always existed on a bit of a knife edge. And now, during this pandemic, where everything's been shut, that we're really now seeing the effects of underinvestment. It's been really interesting to see how opera houses are trying to get creative or opera companies are getting creative with sharing, but it's still not enough to get the number it of back. issues. It's not, it's not even about getting it back. There are a huge number of issues um, which have sprung up. One is that if you give everything away for free, will the audience ever pay again? Yeah. Uh, and so there's so much content online that mm-hmm. none of us have benefited from because of the way our contracts work. So when the productions that we've been in have been repeated on international TV, we haven't received any more money, firstly, individually. But also um, the issue partly is, uh, in the UK particularly, in classical music, 50% of a classical music audience at any given time is over 50. and 
that figure means that you may find that some of those people never come back because of the concerns they have about being indoors for an, any length of period amongst strangers. Mm-hmm. So that then automatically means a problem because if you have to make ends meet in a theatre by having minimum 70% audiences, the drop in audience numbers caused by the pandemic may be enough to tip a theatre over the edge anyway, financially, um, because they're not earning enough from ticket sales. Not all major theatres are government funded either. So Blindbourne's a charity, um, the Old Vic is a charity, they don't receive, or the Globe as well, that none of them receive Arts Council funding. So they're run on, I suppose, more of a commercial basis. So um, we've, we've yet to see in the longer term how, how things pan out. Um, we just have to hope that, you know, if people like what we do enough, that they will come back. Yeah. We also have yeah. to change the education to get people to know what we do, which is... That's a whole other issue. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole, whole other podcast. <laughs> so that's also going to be a problem anyway. If you've got a world that's full of content, which it is now, online, young people are so overwhelmed that you have to fight your corner. And I don't know that we've done that well enough yet. So we're a long road ahead. The trouble is classical music's always relied on live performance to make it distinctive. Mm-hmm. It's the effect of sitting in a concert hall or in a theatre with a live orchestra, you know, particularly for something like Wagner, where the orchestra is enormous. The impact of that is what moves people. And un- unamplified voices, clearly, because, yeah. you know, it's quite superhuman in some respects to hear some of the, particularly the biggest voices in the world, you know, the Wagnerians to to imagine that somebody can make that amount of sound is something that people can't believe it unless they see it for themselves that means that with that taken away we've lost our USP really and so we now have to sort of adopt this sort of digital world and we're all having to learn because none of us have ever done it before I mean I've never had a YouTube channel until now I've suddenly my company has set up a YouTube channel and I don't I'm like, gosh, this is very unexpected. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I, you know, I'm not a generation, I'm in a generation that hasn't had to deal with any of this. Mm. So yeah. it's been a learning curve on all sorts of levels. And, and what will happen in the future? Who, I mean, it, who knows? Anyone's guess. Yeah. But that's also yeah. like, I really like what you said about um, the Wagnerian singers. I've only listened to Wagner or seen Wagner on relays. I have never been able to go to the theater to see it. And you kind of lose the aspect of how big it is because it all seems, it's like when you put a, it's like putting a filter on top of it and you just, it all seems the same. You simply don't guess it in the same, it doesn't have the visceral feel. I mean, I'm very fortunate that the Wagner that I've sung, particularly in Munich, has been done at an incredibly high level musically as well. So mm-hmm. the excitement is there on that basis alone because you don't hear it performed at that level very often. With, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Nina Stemmer as Brunhilde and others are extraordinary singers. Um, it, it was a learning curve for me, I mean, even in, over these years that I've been singing it. And it, 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 it just can't be replaced by watching a DVD. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even in the recording that's been professionally done, you you can't you can't replace it. You can't replace even down to the fact that at the end of Goethe Demmerung in, in Munich's production, they they light a real ring of fire. Yeah. And the audience smells the smoke. You can't replace that even. Yeah. So yeah. it it just it means that oh no, that's not Goethe Demmerung, that's Falkura, where she's laying in the circle of fire. Yeah. And yeah. At the end of at the end of Gerstemmerung, the whole stage goes on fire in Munich. So that and that some of it's a visual in uh, a sort of um, special effect. But yeah. there is real fire and there's real smoke on stage. I mean, it's it's clearly all manufactured, so it doesn't affect anybody. <laughs> but it full on and and then you know the the sound of 
however many horns there are in the orchestra. I mean, the, the orchestra is vast. And in, mm -hmm. in, I think it's Rheingold, it needs, is it eight harps? So, um, I mean. It's just numbers that you can't, you don't hear the, the dynamics inside the orchestra when it's recorded. No. Yeah. But it's also, the trouble is that to put Wagner on is very expensive. Yeah. You think of soloists and how many orchestra members there are. Um, and it's the thing that will be the last to come back because of that. And it's it's also, a bit like doing Marla 8. That, that will be pretty impossible for an entire <laughs> to something a little more uh, positive and happy. Even though uh, COVID has taken away most of your day-to-day um, -day life, you've managed to fill it with food, which is what we all love anyway. So, it doesn't, yeah. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about what Notes from the Musician's Kitchen is and how can people get involved in general? So, um, never one to sit on my hands. I think it's because of the type of life that I have. I can't I don't find it's easy to sit around and do nothing. Yeah. And I became aware that Help Musicians UK were going to struggle to help everybody that they needed to. Um, and we all feel collectively that we should do all we can to help them. They've basically run out of money at the moment um, because of the situation being that 40% of musicians have fallen between the stools of all the government help. So there's a lot of people in quite a lot of trouble. I woke up, I think it was only a few days into lockdown. I'd have to look at my diary to check what day exactly, but, but um, the dawn chorus has been so loud here because I live in a quite a quiet place anyway. And um, my dad's joked all along that he might have to get a shotgun out because at four o'clock every morning, they are deafening. <laughs> and I woke up, I was like, oh, this is really annoying. And I, you know, when you sort of lie there and you think, oh, I can't go back to sleep, it's, my brain's too busy. This idea of notes from musicians' kitchens came into my head with the name, fully formed. So just like that. <laughs> in the morning, after I'd gone back to sleep again, um, and thought, okay, I'll start a group on Facebook. There was no more than that, really. It was just about... <laughs> sharing recipes because we were all becoming obsessed with food very rapidly because that was all we had to do yeah. and within literally like 48 hours there were 750 musicians on there um wow. all of whom were throwing recipes at me as fast as they could um and i sort of got to recipe 40 and i thought oh, i've got to do something different here this is this isn't achieving anything so um, my amazing friend madeline pierard who's a soprano but also incredible web designer um, got a phone call and literally within a few hours she had the website designed so we then started loading all on it's subscription only so you have to pay 10 pounds to access all the recipes but the yeah, um, it's not just about that it's it's also going to become a real cookbook so um, we're not there yet but because I'm still even now receiving recipes almost daily um, and then everybody got really excited by it because it was a way of, I mean, the discussions were lovely on the Facebook group in particular, not just about food, but also making friends and people who hadn't seen each other for years. And it was, it was really lovely. And so um, I then thought I actually need to perhaps do a podcast because it's, it's quite nice to speak to some of those people individually. And um, that's also been overwhelmingly um, sort of um, successful in one sense. Um, because it's been listened to by so many people, which was very surprising. I thought it was something that I'd do and everyone would kind of shrug their shoulders. But um, I've actually loved it because it's meant that I've looked into quite a lot of detail, the relationship between food and music, mm. um, which is pretty profound. Um, and then I got an email from the director of the Kirsten Flagstadt Museum in Norway to say that as it happens, they had a cookbook in their archive, which Kirsten had contributed to in 1950. And what? the museum were going to email me some copies of some of the pages. So it turns out that this cookbook is called As We Like It. 
it sold at Sotheby's in New York a couple of years ago, one copy of the first, it was only one edition for $12,000 um, because it wow. has recipes in it from Benjamin Britten, from Noel Coward, from um, Eleanor Roosevelt, from all Why sorts of things, Enid Blyton. <laughs> so I went on eBay and I got a copy in the UK for eight pounds. <laughs> so um, I'm now trying to decide what to do with that too. I think what's likely is that we will probably replicate some of the, will reproduce some of these recipes in the main cookbook because they're all, all the people that contributed to this cookbook are sadly dead. And I think it's a lovely thing to have um, because um, there's an awful lot of, of classical musicians in here, um, Myra Hess, and there's, there's a, quite a long list. And, um, you know, even like sort of very famous actors and it's brilliant. I mean, um, the, it's just so goes to show how surprising it all is anyway. So I, I, I knew about that. And so I thought I better tell the Britain Foundation about the Benjamin Britain page in it. So um, I emailed them and I said, I don't know if you know about this. And they said, oh, no, we didn't. Um, but what we do know is that Britain contributed to another cookbook in 1970, which um, is called Food of Love. And it was written, it's actually menus more than cookbooks. It was written um, to raise money for the Bath Festival. And again, it's filled with all these very famous people. Um, there's, there's literally names like Charles McCarris and Thea Musgrave and Joan Sutherland and Michael Tippett and wow. uh, even Cleo Lane, who's of course still with us, thankfully. Um, <laughs> so the, at the moment, my job has gone to, to become sort of writing about that too. So, but it's been amazing. It's sort of grown yeah. and grown and grown. And, the lovely thing about that is that the idea originally of digitally breaking bread as a profession, as a community, has also grown. And um, it's brought me such a lot of, not just pleasure, but comfort really, that, that even in the midst of this terrible situation, that there are some silver linings. They may be few and far between, but that there are a few. And um, it's certainly also given me a reason to get up in the morning, which I think is healthy. Yeah, it's so exciting. I can't wait to see where all of that goes. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. I, and incredible. I don't know. I mean, um, I, I think the thing about food is that it's changed. Our food tastes have changed over the years. So it is quite hilarious looking back to 1950 and reading some of the frankly disgusting recipes that are in there. <laughs> it's also, as a cookbook, utterly hilarious in its virtue, virtue signaling. It, it's it's really entertaining reading and I think that's also there's something in that too that that our tastes have changed but also they've become far more international I mean my mum remembers the first time she ever saw a banana because they did not appear in the UK until sort of 1950s 60s even mm. so we you know, we, we take for granted all of these tropical fruits that we eat. And, yeah. and yeah, now we so can't get enough of banana bread, so... <laughs> no, the world's baked one. Um, so that, there's something quite interesting about that, that globalisation has, has made us all eat differently. Mm. And the, the recipes themselves have come from literally all over the world. I mean, um, actually, uh, an Israeli composer, Nimrod Borenstein, who will appear on our podcast episode very soon, um, sent me a recipe for strawberry risotto, which is savory. I just saw that. I was very confused by that. Yes, everybody's been. It's caused a lot of grumpus because everybody's like, that's not right. <laughs> and I and mean, he's like, no, really, it is, it is, it is. <laughs> a lot of very curious people are currently going to try it out because it, it, but that's brilliant because then it's sort of opening up horizons for people that maybe they may not have tried before. So. I know, That's I saw that. I was like, and then I saw the name and I was like, this isn't even an Israeli delicacy. This is just no, his it's just his own recipe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so where, where is it that, you know, people can go and look up Notes so, from Musicians Kitchen? www.notesfrommusicianskitchens.com It's as simple as that. <laughs> Amazing. And then and if you want to listen to the podcast, it is on Apple and Spotify 
and all other platforms. Amazing. And the Amazing. guests included Jamie Barton, Sonia Onchever and Domingo Hindoyan, um, Natalie Stutzman. Um, it was a whole range, including Lucy Schaefer, who I believe has done your podcast too. Yes, we love Lucy. Yeah, we exactly. love Lucy. Lucy and Chris, her husband, did an episode together. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris is sourdough king and Lucy is pickles and jam queen. So yeah. they're brilliantly entertaining to listen to and uh, total superstars. So it's worth listening. Um, if you're a young singer, you won't necessarily learn a lot about our industry from the podcast. But what you will learn is that our industry is filled with very normal, very nice people who, even if they're having huge careers, are very down to earth. And I think that's also been a lovely thing, being able to demonstrate that people uh and where can people find you yourself because you're your own person other than (laughs) (laughs) in my house not going anywhere um i have my own website always which is www.jenniferjohnstonmezzo.com i mean i'm i'm quite googleable yeah (laughs) you are (laughs) if if anybody is listening if any young singers are listening do you feel free to ask me any questions, even if it's on Instagram, because I think at the moment there's a lot of concern about the future and there's a lot of anxiety. Don't feel that we're unapproachable, um, that don't be at home and worry about these things and not do something about it. Um, we may not be able to give you answers, but we can certainly allay some of your fears. Um, and it, it, at the moment it, it that's our, I think our biggest task is to make sure that the younger end of the industry doesn't suffer unduly from worry about mm. everything. So if we can help, we will. Thank that's you. Amazing. That's very kind. That's what we all need. <laughs> Thanks for coming on today. It's been really great. about you but I got really hungry listening to that and then after we recorded the podcast I went on to the website and I still haven't tried the strawberry risotto part of me is just really terrified to do something like that <laughs> and I'm like maybe if I do it then I don't know I don't know like if I don't like it I've wasted um I've wasted time but I'm also very intrigued no I actually I I actually saw it on the website and I thought that looks amazing. <laughs> Have you tried I, it yet? <laughs> no, I haven't tried it yet. I haven't tried it that. Maybe that can be a challenge this week, each make a strawberry risotto. <laughs> and now, alongside all of the bacon, Jennifer also has another great project um, called Bite Size Proms, which is to raise money for Help Musicians UK. And it launches today. Today? Oh, Friday, yeah. Um, so please go follow um, at Bite Size Proms on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and visit bitesizeproms.co.uk. It's amazing what she's been able to accomplish through lockdown. It's really incredible. So this week's question, we asked you months ago, like actually months ago, to ask us anything, and we got two responses. Official Tallulah Bell asks, what is the one lesson you learned the hard way in life and in singing? Sorry, in singing and in life. Okay. Okay, that's a deep question, but I really, really like that question. Um, and what I've learned in singing, the biggest lesson in singing kind of fits into what I've learned in life as well. And that would be to not worry or dwell on what other people think about you. Um, because I think, yes, some people might voice their opinions to you. And yes, don't let it get to you. But also, your head can play tricks with you sometimes especially as a singer and you've just done a performance you'll you'll think you know what other people are thinking and chances are that might be negative um and just don't let those those thoughts get get to you just really believe believe in yourself that's probably in life and in singing yeah that kind of goes along with what i've learned and that is to stick to your guns and like follow your own gut instincts because it's your body, it's your choice, it's your, all that stuff. But really, it's mm-hmm. you have to live with whatever decision you've made. And if you have the ability to take control of a situation, do it. Like, don't, 
muck around and like be like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll wait for someone else to tell me what to do because they don't actually know what's best for you. You can ask for advice, but I think whatever feels right to you. Uh, absolutely. I think in this industry, especially, you just have to be proactive and you mm-hmm. can't just sit there and wait for opportunities to come your way. You have to push forward yourself. Yeah. And if something doesn't feel right, don't do it. You're not going to... Exactly. Nothing's going to happen if you don't do something. Good question. And the second question is from Carlos IOS. I'm going to say. How do you handle doing your first college opera with people who have already done many? Okay. I can relate to this question quite a lot. Um, because I was... I remember standing in the wings of like the dress rehearsal of my first scenes at the academy. And... Uh, I had seen people in my scene who were in like the second year of the masters or had been through um, academy through undergrad and were just very settled. Um, But I think making friendships with those people actually helped me not think, oh, well, they've done this before and I haven't. Um, The the scene's company as a whole was... um, really supportive and because I was on stage with friends um that really helped that situation what about you I think I think don't think about it I think everyone is everyone's new to it because every production's different and every director's different and every stage manager is different um and even if it's in the same environment like even if it's been the same academy productions like it's always different directors and different accompanists and stuff like that and everyone's dealing with something else, so it doesn't really make a difference. I think it is a fresh start every production because everyone's trying to. <laughs> the reality is everyone's trying to impress a different group of like professionals that you're working with. So, yeah, it's it's not like a revival where you're stepping in, or like in the West End when you just step into someone else's shoes. Like here, you really are just. It's a fresh start. Fake it till you make it. Love that saying. It's my favourite saying. (laughs) Alrighty, this week's challenge. We're back with a fresh set of challenges, but keeping in the theme of this week's podcast, we thought we'd keep on the the cooking slash bacon front. Can I just say, it's not only this this podcast theme, but it's also just the theme of lockdown. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. It's true. So, Avi, you are very good at cooking. Uh, everything you've made me um, has been really nice. Um, and I'm loving the Instagram stories with the cooking. I'd like you to experiment more with the slow cooker. <laughs> yeah, I keep saying I'm going to, like, use it more. Because I just... It's the, the idea of, like, not having to sit over the stove, which is very... Um, but I also think of, like, sometimes I just think of the slow cooker as, like, a very wintry... I'm with you on Thanks. that, actually. Yeah. Um, like the types of meals I've, I've been cooking me... in the evening are... Like, we bought, like, a... We're not allowed grills. We're not allowed barbecues on the balcony or anything. So we bought, like, an in-kitchen grill. And we've just been doing, like, burgers and fish and stuff on the grill as though we're having a barbecue. <laughs> um, so we haven't been using the slow cooker. But if, if that's going to save you time, then go for it. Which just reminds me, I'm like, I'm very excited to see you here on Saturday for a socially distanced barbecue in our backyard. Well, not our backyard, in, in our neighbor's back. I'm very excited to have that because I haven't had a proper barbecue. But yeah, I'm so excited because the two of us haven't actually like been together for more than 20 minutes. Well, 45 minutes and months. Anyway, your challenge this week. I'll think of something with the slow cooker. I might even think of like something for the barbecue on Saturday. I'll let you know. Yeah. Um, but your challenge this week is to try the strawberry risotto. That is discussed in the podcast and on Notes from Musicians Kitchens. Nice. Okay. Deal. Okay. All right. I'll... Have you ever made, have you made risotto before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... Actually, it's uh, it's Lewis's mom has a really great um, chicken risotto recipe. But since it's going like a bit veggie, we've just been using corn chicken. But I can never quite get the consistency right. I mean, it's 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 edible, but it's not like oh, it's 
It's not like how how the poor Pauline does it. <laughs> yeah. I totally get you. I mean, I've been veggie now for what? Seven years? Six years? But yeah, there's like textures that I miss. I did order corn steaks. So I'm excited to try them. They're really good. I've got some in the fridge. They're oh, really good. Okay. I mean, okay, don't expect the texture of a steak, <laughs> but the, the flavor is really good. go we just wanted to mention that if you would love to support our podcast please follow us on patreon yeah we are there now and we will be releasing early podcasts we'll have newsletters some really great perks so if you want to support us and become a patron you can do that for as little as the cost of a cup of coffee a month i mean and you know that we have um caffeine addictions here so please support us so we can buy those coffees (laughs) yeah And that is all for episode 33 of AA Opera. Thank you so much to Jennifer for joining us. We had a great time and it's great to be back. Yeah, and don't forget to check out all of Jennifer's um, links. She is, as she says, very Googleable. 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 <laughs> I love that. Um, and check out Notes from Musicians, Kitchens, and Bite Size Proms, all available everywhere. And don't forget to follow AA Opera on all of the Instagrams, the Facebooks, the Twitters. And remember to subscribe and rate this podcast. Yeah, it really helps us out. And in the meantime, have a great, great week. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.